Good morning and welcome to the Reorg Primary View in which we offer you incisive interviews and insight on issues affecting distressed debt, leveraged finance, direct lending, high yield bonds, high yield municipals, covenants, private credit, private equity, middle market, private debt, and now even more so banks. I'm James Holloway, Reorg's man in the steaming bayous of South Texas. And with me today is Brendan Hall, Director and Research Analyst at Breen Asset Management, a hedge fund focused on opportunities across private and public markets. Brendan focuses on distressed debt, high yield and special situations credit investments across the quality spectrum. And since joining Breen, Mr. Hall has worked on some of the largest bankruptcies in post-reorg situations, including Hertz, Intelsat, Malincrote, Chesapeake, California Resources, and Diamond Offshore, just to name a few. And today, we're going to discuss the recent bankruptcy filing of Silicon Valley Bank's parent company, SVB Financial. Brendan, good morning, and thanks for making the time. Morning. Thanks for having me on. Now, can you just begin by setting the table for us for the Silicon Valley Holding Company, what the capital structure looks like and where we are in the case? Sure, sure, no problem. So SVB Financial Group, the parent company of Silicon Valley Bank, filed for bankruptcy Southern District of New York about a week after the California regulator uh, and the FDIC took over the bank. The capital structure is not, not very complex on the liability side, you have 3.4 billion of senior notes and 3.7 billion of preferred stock. There's no secure debt, but we do have this potential FDIC deficiency claim. Uh, that'll be the, kind of the large unknown in this case. On the asset side, we have a number of different buckets of value. We have the investment bank, uh, SVB Securities, previously known as Learing Securities. We have SVB Capital, which is the vetted uh, the venture and credit arm. Uh, and then we have this kind of group of financial assets. There's some cash, there's some securities, there's a large amount of warrants, and then potentially some substantial uh, NOLs. So where we kind of stand in the case post first aid hearing is kind of this battle brewing in the courtroom between the bondholder group and the FDIC. And in the, the coming months, I suspect we're going to see a number of court filings alleging you know, all sorts of things. But I think the two main points of dispute will be the two billion or so of cash sitting with the FDIC and any sort of insurance deficiency claim the FDIC will try to bring from the fallout of the depository institution. Now, so in parallel, the debtor and its advisors, investment bankers will be running a sale process for the various businesses and monetization strategies for the financial assets. Now, I think it's important to kind of know that, you know, in many bankruptcies, the debtor in possession is still able to run its business as a going concern and hopefully generate some cash. And in theory, you know, the business able to use that cash, cash from a dip, cash from operations to fund the administrative costs, professional fees, critical vendors, trade creditors and such. And but here, you know, the the bank is gone. There's no new cash. There's no there's no new business. So um, I'll note that the investment bank and the asset management, the credit arm is still operating and are not filing entities in this case. But I don't see any sort of large cash generation going to benefit the Holdco uh, in the near term. And we actually saw at the first day hearing the exact opposite of that, 
those non-debtor entities need cash from the hold code to fund capital calls for their business. So essentially, kind of in the short term, the pie here is fixed. Okay, thank you. Um, so can we talk about that pie and how investors are valuing the different slices? Sure, yeah, happy to kind of break it down. There's, I guess I could start with the cash. There's a little bit, a little over $2 billion sitting at Silicon Valley Bridge Bank, and the judge authorized the debtor uh, access to about 180 million of it to fund those capital commitments. But essentially the large remainder of it is going to be in dispute. Um, there, there might be some commingling of funds and certain regulatory uh, accounts uh, that do indeed belong to SVB, but almost all of the 2 billion on deposit in theory should belong to the hold co. I think you know, process-wise, the hold code is going to have a claim into the FDIC receivership. But I think, you know, doing a little bit of research on this, there's there's no provision in the FDIA that subordinates the claims of insiders, corporate affiliates, executives, like, you know. So that Sunday night, the F, when the FDIC announced they'd be guaranteeing all the depositors their money back above the 250 grand, they sort of, you know, accidentally ensured that the hold code would have the right to their cash. And I think that's kind of the consensus interpretation of that, that joint announcement. So in the meantime, the receivership is sort of holding that cash hostage, claiming they need to follow a statutory process and, you know, hang on to your shorts. But I think what's less concerning, what's more concerning, I should say, about that is, is less the process um but more so this theory of set off which they mentioned in the first day filings i owe you you owe me let's we'll we'll cancel our claims out against each other and if the fdic does have an allowed claim it can seek to set off its claim against the svb deposit so you know a, a set off claim is a secured claim in bankruptcy and there's no secured debt in the structure so a set off claim would essentially prime the bondholders. Oh, I see. Okay, and can you just elaborate a little bit more on just the FDIC's actual claim, how that works? Sure, yeah, so <laughs> this would be, you know, going deep into law and process, and you guys did a great webinar last week with, you know, some sort of legends of the bankruptcy industry that lived through uh, the OA and a lot of these distressed bank uh, bankruptcies and you know i won't really go into to you know huge detail on it I won't do justice to it but i can kind of highlight i guess a little bit of where the market will view the precedent and i think at a high level the fdic just doesn't have this automatic claim into the hold co as as much as people have kind of been you know seeing that headline I think this is just, you know, fundamental rule of structural subordination, limited liability. Creditors of a subsidiary just don't have a claim onto the assets of a parent. And my, my bankruptcy professor just drilled that into my head. I think you look at the three, four, you know, big Holdco um, banking bankruptcies, the FDIC, uh, you kind of got the short end of the stick and they bring all sorts of claims. There's capital maintenance under 365.0, which people have been talking about, fraudulent transfers, those are mostly going to be dividends in this case, 
Uh, there'll be some tort claims for breach of fiduciary duty, and then uh, you know claims for sharing in the tax refunds, the, the NOLs, and then there's you know the source of strength doc- doctrine codified into Dodd Frank, which in my view doesn't really create a concrete financial liability. But I think that debate is probably you know better left for the bankruptcy scholars. So I can go into detail in each of these and the you know particular circumstances. You can do this. All, all day, but I think the the takeaway in each of them uh, of uh, the precedent is that the FDIC was left holding the bag and just very quickly uh, ticked through them. You know, IndyMac they had a five billion dollar claim, they settled for I think around sixty million of gucks, and I think they got a distribution of like six million. And you have to dig on the bankruptcy docket for this, but it's there. And then Colonial Bancorp, they had, I think, a billion dollar proof of claim they got. And then WAMU, this is probably the most, you know, the closest precedent. The FDIC and the Holdco each had claims going kind of against each other. But after years and years of litigation, the FDIC agreed to forgo any of its distribution, including the NOLs, the tax sharing, in exchange for a release. So... And the one claim on that, that list that may have some teeth here on the FDIC side is probably, you know, an upstream dividend of, I think it was a little bit under 300 million in the quarter before the failure. Um, and then, you know, there's going to be, I'd imagine, some sort of tort claim on the basis of, you know, lack of risk management and all that. And I'm not going to, you know, speculate on conduct of the, the bank employees prior to the failure, but I think the idea of crystallizing, you know, a large claim on that basis seems a little bit like a long shot versus here. So I guess my point here is that at the end of the day, precedent says the whole co will prevail, but I don't think, you know, distressed folks should approach the situation without, you know, sort of factoring in an unfavorable ruling. Oh, okay. That's very interesting. Um, and if we look back at the other assets at the Holdco, um, the investment bank and the asset management firm, or, or is there value here or, or how are investors looking at those two? Yeah, I think that paradigm is probably a little bit more straightforward. I think, you know, they paid on the investment bank, I think they paid $360 million. I think there was rumors that there were some very expensive employee contracts in there. We saw some senior bankers or some headlines jump to other shops. I don't think anyone was really surprised by that, but kind of remains to be seen what's going to happen. As far as like a valuation, we've talked to a lot of folks and heard a range of views. Some folks will haircut the $360 million, Some will leave it at cost. I think it really depends on your view of just not only this the senior talent there, your view on M&A activity and diving into it and saying how much of the revenues were tech, how much were healthcare, do they have any really sticky clients, kind of understanding what the real money drivers of that business has been. And I think it's the same idea behind the venture and credit business. Uh, generally, you'll see these businesses trade three to call it 7% of AUM, depending on kind of the fees and the stickiness of them. They had just closed 9.5 billion um as a 1231 you definitely have to haircut that given the large tech sell-off over the past year or so and you can maybe come up with something a little bit more reasonable um and then you have the warrant so this this is pretty interesting it just shows you just like how intertwined 
SVB was with the tech and, and venture world. And the last disclosure they had over 3,200 companies, warrants in over 3,200 companies. And that, that's got to be some sort of record. Like 65 of them were marked over a million. So they've had this kind of recently this history of taking you know huge chunks of that money off the table i think 2021 they took over 500 million off uh but the majority of that was was attributed to the coinbase ipo so i think the question as you dig into this for investors is really like what's what's left are those warrants worthless what are they marked at it's hard to kind of haircut it without diving into the book um but you know, a lot of people have been writing about SVB and this sort of incestuous relationship with the venture capital and the very loyal following of customers and their business model, you know, banking, lending, venture investing, tech M&A, they had a wine business, et cetera. You know, they, that connectivity was their business model. I, I don't think in this case, it's as simple as saying the party's over, you know, who wants us the, that scraps? I think you know there's there's real value in the ecosystem that they have. So, okay, interesting. And then there's one that we haven't talked about yet, and that's the uh, NOLs. Yeah, the NOL. That's those are uh, that can get a little tricky, a little hairy. I think in this case, though, it's potentially you know the called the second largest source of recovery for the bonds. And the theory behind it is that the Holdco can take a worthless stock deduction of the equity that they had in the opco. So I think they had over 16 billion of book book equity value in Silicon Valley Bank and that would be eligible to write down to zero under 382 of the tax code. So the simple mechanics of it is you take today's statutory tax rate 21% and of you know of the 16 billion and that's about 3.3 billion of estimated tax savings. So 3.3 billion, what's that worth today? That's the question for bondholders and what everyone's trying to figure out. And I've been through this in a number of cases. And most recently, for example, an Intel set, it can get very complicated. An Intel set, it was, we just need to find another Luxembourg-based satellite company to merge with over the next three years. And we can, we can realize some value. And so there's all these kind of considerations that you have to take into account when you're looking at this, you have the statutory time limits and change of control provisions that you need in order to effectuate a transaction. You, you know, you have this kind of tight time frame. You need the right structure. You know, you know, you need an entity to merge with essentially someone who needs the NOLs and can come up with the right mechanics to utilize them. And, and third, I think you kind of, you have to really examine the tax sharing agreement. I haven't seen it, but you know what sort of agreement existed between the Holdco and the bank? Uh, that will probably come out in some sort of discovery in the coming months. Um, so you have that, and then you have to look at the precedents and what we can point to. And actually, in, in WAMU itself, um, and as well as some other transactions, I've kind of looked at them and, you know, rough, rough range, you see kind of gross tax savings of about 15%. So don't quote me on that, but 15% of 3.3 billion, that's kind of roughly how 
people are viewing how you can look at the value of those those NOLs. But again, I've heard ranges of what these are worth, but that's the rough mechanics and a lot of hoops you have to jump for bondholders really see any value in that. So, okay, thanks. And so that leads us to where the bonds are trading today. Uh, what do you see in the trading levels of the bonds, particularly after the first day hearing? So all of that value um, that we just kind of walked through, all the process risks that exist, and at the moment you have the bonds trading at roughly sixty cents. That's kind of the midpoint of the waterfall, if you will. There was a mo- like Sunday. Sunday night, Monday morning, there was a moment in time when the bonds got as low as 40 cents and you have seen a lot of more traditional distressed folks step in. I think, you know, two billion of cash, you haircut that down uh, for advisors and other potential admin claims to the 1.3, 1.4 range. And maybe you get about 40 cents of recovery, assuming everything else is, is, is worthless. And I think that's kind of the the margin of safety you can get comfortable with, but that type of value, like this valuation exercise isn't like, like an endo. We can go drug by drug. I can look at peak and trough multiples. I can come up with a valuation and call another distress desk. And I, I, I bet, you know, they, they come up with something very close and here we're nowhere near a consensus and we won't be, I don't think for a while, I think, the bonds are probably going to oscillate up and down um, based on something caught up, something coming out of the bankruptcy docket, not some sort of underlying, you know, economic factor. And we saw, you know, the bonds bleed a little bit after First Citizens announced um, that takeover, and the FDIC had kind of crystallized. Uh, their loss uh, to approximately 20 billion. So I think from here, it's going to be a lot of kind of extrapolating, you know, will that 20 billion be a claim to the hold co it's, it's, it's going to be pretty difficult to analyze. And I think, you know, only time will tell. Okay, thank you. Now, is there anything else that we need to be thinking about going forward in the case? Yeah, I think, you know, just I'd go back to probably my original point about the cash. We're we're not the we're not the first firm to to criticize professional fees. There's there's a lot of professionals involved in this. There will be and a lot of litigation. And but I think the one thing that is pretty much certain is that there's no new cash being generated. Like full stop. And the cash is easily the most you know, important source of recovery for the bonds. And so I think it was the lawyer at uh, Appaloosa on the first day hearing said, you know, this this claims process could, t- could take years to resolve and we don't have years, so. Okay, very interesting case. Uh, Brendan, thank you very much for your insight. Really appreciate it. And thanks for being on The Primary View. We look forward to speaking again in the future. No problem. Thanks, James.